Let's give a hand praise to Jesus. We could do more than that. Let's give it up. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for this time that we have today. Thank you for the air that we breathe. Thank you for your blessings, Lord. Thank you, Jesus' name. Uh, good morning, everyone. Um, it's a privilege to appear once more. Happy Valentine's Day to everyone, to all. Um, it's always such an honor to be behind this this pulpit. Uh, I know we've had quite a few weeks with business spinning and all that, but excited for what God is doing today. What he's been doing the whole month, in fact. I say it's pretty, I think if my, my dad was here, I could almost just see his big old smile. Probably is smiling. I'm pretty sure of it. Super excited for what's happening, and uh, I want to start in prayer so if we could bow our heads. Dear Lord, I want to ask you, Jesus, today, Lord, that you would prepare us, Lord. Prepare our minds, Lord. Prepare our hearts, Lord Jesus, for the message you have today. Use me, Lord Jesus, to convey the message, Lord Jesus. Help us to respond. Help us to be sensitive, Lord God, to your spirit, Lord God, to what you have for us today, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray and we all say, Amen. All right, you can be seated. I want to title this message, Our Capacity to Love. I thought it'd be fitting since it is Valentine's Day. And I want to start off with a passage. Uh, it's the first one's Colossians 3.14. Colossians 3.14. I'm going to go ahead and all, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Okay? So over everything else, you put on love, and that binds it together. Uh, next passage is 1 Corinthians 13, 2. 1 I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and I, if I have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. That's incredible to hear. I can have it all. If I don't have love, it means zero. Next one, Ephesians 4, 2. Ephesians 4, 2. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing one another in love. And then I want to continue with the one I think we've heard quite often. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 5. Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no records of wrong. So I want to begin kind of with the origin story of Valentine's Day. It was a, a lot of little different stories that I found. Uh, there are several accounts, but the most common one seems to come from a time in Rome. At the time, Rome was ruled by Emperor Claudius II, and he took notice that Single men made better soldiers, and so he outlawed the marriage of young men throughout Rome. Now, there was a priest named Valentine, and the story goes, he saw this as unjust, unfair. And so he began to marry young couples in secret. But soon his actions, uh, you know, somebody saw that, they discovered him, and he was sentenced to death. However, while he was in prison, uh, there was a lot of young people that came around him and would visit him and talk with him. 
likely people that maybe he married, but um, there was one particular person that, that was particularly touched by his action. It was the daughter of one of the prison guards at that prison. She believed he had done the right thing and would often visit him, talk with him, you know, support him. Um, and on the day Valentine was scheduled to be killed, he wrote a note thanking her for friendship, kindness during that time. And that's how that custom kind of came from, the exchanging of notes. This is a lot more of a sad story, but that's how it kind of came about. So it gives you an idea, not the happiest again, but uh, that's, how, that's where the story came from. Now, we see in Scripture that as Christians, before we do anything else, before we attempt anything, it comes from a place of love. Again, we saw in Ecclesiastes 3.14, over all these virtues put love which binds them together in perfect unity. 1 Corinthians 16.14, do everything in love. Now in the Bible, we see mention of four types of love expressed throughout the New and the Old Testament. Now these are Greek words that either appear in the Bible or they embody a biblical facet of love. These are eros. So this is the romantic or sensual love. It is God's gift to mankind. There's also storge. This is family love or love within your family. There's also philia, brotherly love or bonds between Christians. So loving your, your neighbor. I think we hear that a lot. There's also agape. This is the highest type of love and defined as God's immeasurable love for mankind. It's unconditional. It's vast and so pure, and I'm sure we're all so grateful for that, that kind of love. Now, these four types of love encapsulate and represent the love that Scripture tells us. Sorry, so we'll find, as we're reading the Bible, we'll see different examples of this throughout each Scripture and throughout each uh, gospel. But the ones I want to focus on today are the last three. They all kind of blend in, but it's philia, agape, and story, and our capacity to exercise these as God intended. Now, why is this important? Why is it important to have this capacity? Well, let me give you a, a little example. Um, we, have a, we have a cat at home, and I'm working from home right now, and typically what my routine is, I'll get ready, you know, all the good stuff. I'll stand in front of my desk and start getting ready. What he'll do is he'll jump on my desk and sit right in front of my desk and look at me. And it's almost as if you're like, He's like, I got to check in with him. I have to see what he, you know, I have to give him some love. It's the most cutest thing, but it's a bit annoying too, because I'll give him some attention, and then he, he wants to, like, he wants to keep going. I'll take him off. He turns back on. I'll take him off. He turns back on. And so I'm just kind of left with, like, finally moving him, and uh, he'll kind of act out a little bit. He'll, he'll jump on the couch, jump off. He'll jump back on the, on the desk. He'll jump off. He'll tap me on my leg, run off, and look at me like, what are you going to do? It's, it's the funniest thing, but it's, it's him kind of, you know, not being too happy with me, just giving him two minutes of attention, and I go. Now, he's a cat, right? So, big deal. But what happens when the same thing happens within our families, in our marriage, within our own church, right? We extend something to somebody. We expect a certain thing. We don't get it. And what's our reaction? How do we respond to that in turn? So we're not cats, right? We're human beings. It's a specific thing that happens. We're often told, oh, you got to love. you got to show compassion. And that's good. I think we all think that. I don't think any of us, if we were told, would say, yeah, I'm not going to love. I'm not going to show compassion. I'm not going to do any of that. No, we, we want to do that. We 
always wanted to. I think that's our, our desire is to do that. But there's always a but. Or usually there is. Oh, well, I would do this, but. Well, I could do this, but. It becomes conditional. And that can hinder our ability to love as God wants us to love. Now this, I think, involves everything, all four types. It's not specific to one. One common obstacle that constantly needs to be checked continually in order to practice all four of these is our human nature, our egos, our pride, our greed, envy. And all these typically begin with trying to satisfy with something within ourselves, our own selfishness. It's our inner me, 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 and me. This attitude is all around us. We're, we're born with this, right? As, as kids, when you see little babies, they take a toy away, and you're like, no, 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 you got to share. You got to share. You know, got to share your snacks, got to share your toys. It's in us. So it doesn't, it's not something we kind of grow out of. It's, it's constantly we're, we're dealing with that kind of, um, we're just dealing with that, right? Trying to be selfless. And the devil knows this. He uses it to divide, to create strife amongst ourselves, in our families, marriage, and even in our church. It was, in fact, a part of the very first sin. In Genesis 3.6, we find the woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious. She wanted the wisdom it would give her. It was a self thing. She took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. Right? It was just a self. Like, I want something for myself here. I want that wisdom. Our society also teaches the very same thing. Do what makes you happy. What's going to benefit you? If it feels good for you, just do it. Who cares what others think? And this is a lie we're constantly battling. C.S. Lewis, uh, for those of you who know, he's a well-known scholar. He's passed away now, but author of several books, really good ones. Um, he wrote in his book, The Problem of Pain, he said, at this very moment, you are either committing selfishness, about to commit it, or repenting of it. Now think about this. What is the last thing that annoyed you or bothered you? Why did it annoy you or why did it bother you? Where was the root? How did you respond in turn? Now there are, are exceptions to this, but likely you will find that that feeling however you came to it was entirely based on some kind of reasoning in your head that usually you just made up on your own. And it's just something, again, perhaps you're not getting something from the other person. Again, this could be a friend, this could be a family member, this could be your spouse. And then we kind of fill in the blanks of these, of these questions. Ephesians 5, 15 through 16 says, be careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every every opportunity because the days are evil. Galatians 3, 2, set your, minds set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. So again, we're talking about how we get information and we kind of change it in our heads. Psychologists call this selective perception. Since there's so much stimuli coming at us, we choose what we want to hear to suit our own needs. Just as kind of like when you're, if you know about photography, you can change angles to kind of manipulate what the person is seeing in the photo you're taking. That's kind of what we do with our minds, what we see and what we're hearing. We're doing the exact same thing there. Now, of course, there are, there are levels of this. For some, it might be a little, you know, a little less, a little bit more. And typically, this is more of, a, of an adult thing because when you're younger, you know, and younger, I mean like you're a teenager, something like that, you know, it's really not something you think about because you're always kind of like, well, I'm, 
when I'm older, uh, okay, I can do all that, or I can be this, or whatever, you know. So, but as adults, we kind of mature and grow, grow into reality, and it becomes more challenging to view the world as we used to, to view it with a humble heart. The Bible warns us of this in Philippians 2, 3 through 4. Again, Philippians 2, 3 through 4. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regarding one another as, important, as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Okay? So again, it's anything that we do. We start with looking for the interests of somebody else. As I mentioned before, the problem of being that selfish is never is that little trait, if you will, never travels alone. Typically, he has his buddies. So this is ego, greed, pride. They all kind of combine and, and they can make some make you make some pretty bad decisions and put you in some terrible places. This is especially true in a marriage. It can be true with family and church, but marriage is, is kind of more the higher example because you are challenged by these realities constantly. And there's no timeout, there's no break time, there's no I'll see you next Sunday. It continues, right, each and every day. It's always there. So I can see some of you nudging. <laughs> So it's something that's constant there. Now, I want us to focus on how to examine how we manage our own selfish desires. And again, I, I, I don't think none of us can say, like, no, no, I don't, have, I don't deal. I don't have to deal with that. I've, I'm enlightened. I've, I'm above that. I don't think none of us can say that. I think we all have some kind of, you know, we can improve, I'd say. So... Um, so God intended us and commanded us to love. God makes reference to us, to church, as the bride, because he saw marriage as a beautiful representation of what love should be. Now, what are our challenges when we're facing this? Right? We're talking about trying to be selfless and the challenges that we face. First thing we have is our, our own human nature. The devil will try all he can to get important relationships to fail, but especially marriages, because if he can do that, he can destroy the backbone of the church. And ultimately, the backbone of our society. And we, and we certainly see that today, right? We see different messages as far as, like, what a family should be, and it should be this, and it should be that. And there's always that struggle. And again, when you look in Genesis, when the serpent took advantage of Eve and convinced her to bite the apple, he went. So in Genesis 3, 4 through 6, you won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows your eyes will be open as soon as you eat it, and you will likely be like God, knowing both good and evil. And the woman was convinced, so he covered that. Another challenge we have is our society. It's shiving us more toward a selfish idea of love. Gender roles as well are becoming harder and harder to distinguish. You have a man and a woman caught in this confusion because they're trying to be woke, but are fighting this internal battle within themselves, conflicting with how God created them. And I think... We've seen examples of this, of people trying to be one thing, like, no, no, I'm going to do this, and I'm just, and it's kind of laughable sometimes, because you see kind of the way the world's kind of turning, and people trying to fit into this woke mentality, and it's like, no, no, it doesn't quite fit, because it's not, we're not made for that, but it's being shoved down our throats, that's constantly being said. Our society tries to sell the idea that love has far more to do with how you feel or how happy you are versus a commitment and a decision made wholeheartedly before God. Now, I'm not trying to say you shouldn't be happy, right? That's, that's, a, that's a good thing. You should feel joy in everything. 
But if you're using happiness as the absolute measure of love, then you need to rethink that because emotions will run high and low. That's always a reality. So it's high and low. Ultimately, God is the bond that fully connects a marriage. So marriage is like a mismatched puzzle. Some of the, some of the pieces will connect. They'll connect. Some won't quite connect. But God is that bridge that gaps those areas and makes them complete. I remember one time at uh, family, I was super young with my dad. We were walking around everywhere. and uh, We were walking by the main hall, and Brother Frank was preaching loud uh, in the main hall. So you, I could hear everything from outside, everything, like, perfectly. And I wasn't really paying attention too much. But one thing he said, and again, being a kid, I was 10 maybe, and he said, do not marry because you are lonely or seek to be happy. This is a terrible expectation to put on someone and something so important to look at once you're going into a marriage. But I think this actually applies in all aspects. Marriage, again, we shouldn't look to others to kind of fill that void in us. It should be God that fills that in us. We are bombarded with constant examples of people confusing love for emotion. Terms like, I'm sure you guys have seen this in the tabloids, oh, well, so-and-so stood up and then, quote, we fell out of love. Our love didn't last. This is completely opposite of what God intended because God's example of love is everlasting. He doesn't fail. 1 Corinthians 3.18, love never fails. I think another challenge that we're facing too, again, we've talked about society, we've talked about our human nature, is the rise in social networking or social media. Social media trains us to desire and to covet. The, the entire system is based on the fact it's a billion-dollar industry. You know, sometimes, you, you know, you'll have people, oh, so-and-so has got something new. I want it. They look so happy. I want it. So-and-so's husband posted this, and I just got this. Why? You don't love me. Right? That's where it kind of becomes. And again, I, I think there's a place. Social media can be a nice thing, and there's in moderation. But when it becomes that kind of thing, where we're constantly looking at it and feeding into it. And I honestly don't think our brains were made for that much. Just kind of going in and in and in and in and in. I think 20 years ago, it was just, well, I found out this, and it was one instance. And then two days later, you found out this. But now it's like 50 of them. And it's just, you get stirred up in these things. Now, these are things we don't really say out loud. It might be just to our spouse or whatnot. But... Again, a few decades ago, we would never even heard of this. I think Instagram launched in 2010. Um, before that, I think it was, I guess, MySpace and all that stuff. Um, now, I want to add a little caveat here because, again, as I mentioned, social media can be a good thing. It's in moderation, for, as a lot of things can be good. For some, it's a livelihood. Others, you can share, you know, you can connect with family members. You can share pictures. But all that is not, that's not the purpose of all that. It's... It's part of a bigger engine, right? It's about making money for the bigger people up there. I actually, um, on my Instagram account, I actually disabled my mic because I noticed that anything I would say, I was getting served ads for, which is the craziest thing. I wasn't searching for anything, and I knew that. I wasn't searching for anything, and I would just kind of, I would say it a few hours later, there it was. And it was literally, I knew it because I hadn't searched for it, nothing. Sometimes cookies and everything tie you with your browser and so on. But it was just, a, it was scary. Like, wow, this is not for my enjoyment. This is just for the ability to make money for somebody else. So 
take that you know, grain of salt there. Um, so we are constantly being served reminders of what we don't have and what we want, but neglecting what we actually do have. Now, according to the American Academy of Metro Matrimonial Lawyers, over 80% of U.S. divorce attorneys now have witnessed their rise in the number of divorces linked to social networking. That's pretty, pretty crazy there. Now, this is a kind of a new thing, so I'm sure we'll see more things, but that's kind of disturbing there. On a personal note, I remember when the pandemic started almost a year ago, and when that happened, everything shifted to online, and uh, so there was nobody in church. Everything was all webcast. But I remember I found myself every Monday feeling so anxious, like just kind of like revved up. And I, it was kind of a couple weeks, and I was like, why is this happening? I'm, what's happening? What's... And I, I found myself that every Monday I was looking at Facebook and getting all worked up because I would see all these other churches with beautiful presentations, 4K and all this other stuff. And I was just like, man, I want to do that. I want to do that. And my brain would start kind of going and going and going and going. Until finally I realized, like, what am I doing here? What, what am I, what is the point of this? And I, I put a stop to that. I do want to improve. I do want to make things better. I, I take pride in that. But not in that way. There is a, a healthier way of doing that. And the problem is we're in the information age. So we all like to think that we know not everything, but a little bit of everything. So it kind of makes us quote-unquote, a, I guess, uh, we like to think that we know everything, essentially. That's what we're saying. So we form opinions on that. But we need to be selfless in this. As Junior mentioned last week, it's not about me, it's not about you, it's about souls. It's about our ability to be selfless. It could be that somebody else maybe has, it's like you have a better idea than somebody else, or so-and-so maybe said this, you would have said this, pastor said this, you would have done it this way. But it's not about that. It's not about what you think. We all have different perspectives. We all have things that are fed. We filter it through a certain filter, and out comes a result. It's about being selfless. Again, I'm going to refer to the scripture again. 1 Corinthians 3, 2. If I have the gift of prophecy, can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. Just nothing. Now, another challenge that comes with this social media, there's, there's human nature. Another challenge that can keep us from practicing being selfless and, and practice loving as God intended is our own personal wounds and hurts. Selfishness or pride can sometimes come as a response to wounds we have sustained from others or situations in our lives and in turn keep us from loving and potentially missing out on opportunities. We use that on blessings, potential friendships. The list can go on. Sometimes these can be within family, within our church family, even in our own marriage. And the problem with these is sometimes these wounds don't actually close. And I bandage them a little bit. And they're usually hidden. We don't share them. They're personal. We brush them away. And sometimes even you know, additional forms of, of healing or need, like counseling. But the important thing is not leaving them as they are. Now, how can we overcome this? How can we love selfishly, or at least get on the path of trying to practice this? Number one is turn to God. Oh, well, actually, 
being filled with the Holy Spirit and turning to God in those times in prayer. How many times have you guys felt just so angry or upset and you're just kind of like, your brain's kind of going through all these things and you're just thinking, oh, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that and this is so wrong and whatever. And your first instinct isn't to prayer, but has anybody ever done that where you just kneel and you say, God, what do I need to do? And at the moment, it's like God says, you know what you need to do. It's as if, and even your own flesh is saying, I don't want to do that. I'm not going to do that because I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear that. Forget it. But as soon as you kneel, as soon as you humble yourself, God says, you know what you need to do. You know this isn't right. That is such an important thing. It's about turning away that pride, that, that ego that we have sometimes. It's just kneeling and humbling ourselves before God and saying, I need you. I cannot manage this on my own. I need your help in this. That, I think, is number one. This is important because we won't always get the, the outcome we want, right? It's life. Different things happen. We won't always know what's going to hit us or how it's going to go, but God is the one that can help us release that to him. Something else, another step in this is give and expect nothing in return. Give selflessly. 1 Corinthians, again, 6.14, do everything in love. Corinthians 10.24, no one should seek their own good but the good of others. Give and, give and expect nothing back. Give selflessly. Imagine if we all practiced that, right? We all kind of had the mindset, I'm just going to give this as a gift. Just as God did, right? When he died for us, he didn't expect, like, well, I need all this back. It was a gift to him, to us. Recognize that God knows all. He is in control. So this is uh, the next step. It's not our job to be judge and jury. So again, recognize that God knows all. He is in control. It is not our job to be judge and jury. Now, if you've been distant from God, then this might be a little bit more difficult to kind of wrap your head around. At that point, I think you, you would need to re reconnect. But recognizing that. We constantly need to strive for a conditional love with no buts. That is a love that transcends our own needs, our own desires, our own wants. It's emptying ourselves for the other person. Now, I want to read a passage from, from Philippians. This was, Philippians was actually written by Paul while he was in prison in Rome. So this is, uh, let me get the scripture here, Philippians chapter 2, 12 through 18. It's a long one. There it is. Okay. Dear friends, you have followed my instructions when I was with you. Now that I'm away, it is more important, more important, work hard to show the results of your salvation. Obeying God with deep reverence and fear. Verse 13, for God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. Verse 14, do everything without complaining and arguing so that no one can criticize you. Live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. Hold firmly to the word of life. Then on the day of Christ's return, I will be proud that I, didn't, that I did not run the race in vain and that my work was not useless. 17, but I will rejoice even if I lose my life, pouring it out like a liquid offering to God, just like your faithful service is an offering to God. And I want all of you to share that joy. Yes, you should rejoice and share, and I will share your joy. 
such a, a powerful verse. He's in prison, but he's urging them and telling them those steps. It's going to lead them the way. Now, if you could please stand with me, and if you miss could please come up. Selfishness should not be competing with our ability to love. When it comes to eros, that first step that we saw in marriage, when we are selfish, we know that, that God will look out for our, our needs and not our own selfish needs. It can't be conditional. It cannot be 50-50. It is never about that. And you might think, well, Caleb, what if my spouse is going to take advantage of me? I can assure you, if you both aspire to be selfless, God, keep God first, you're going to see this amazing return on that investment of that selfless love. A woman's greatest desire, and we see this in Ephesians 5.33, a woman's greatest desire is to be loved by her husband and cared for, feel secure. A man is to be respected and valued. Maybe for some of you, you're feeling those things are kind of out of place for you. You're not feeling those exact things right now. Ephesians 5.33, however, let each of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Maybe it won't always be the exact balance. Again, we're human. But you both strive for it. God will bless you for it. With Storia, when it comes to our families, we'll be able to get past those rough edges with some, you know, so-and-so, I don't want to talk to them and so on, and love them for who they are and not who we want them to be. We're not trying to shift them and shape them around us. They are. I'm going to love them as God wants me to love them. Philia, our brethren in our church, our, our neighborly love in our church, we're able to connect and relate more to our brethren in unity and able to further God's kingdom for his glory because it's not about what we desire or expect, but being selfless. And again, imagine if we all just tried that, just to be selfless. Who, who cares who gets the glory? doesn't matter. Let's try to be in unity in that. Finally, we have agape. Following his resurrection... Jesus asked the apostles of Peter, and this is in, okay. Jesus asked the apostle Peter if he loved him agape. Peter replied three times that he did, but the word he used was failure or brotherly love. Peter had yet received the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. He was incapable of agape love. But after Pentecost, Peter was so full of God's love that he spoke from his heart, and 3,000 people were converted. Imagine that. Just the simple fact of the Holy Spirit was able to produce this passion in Peter. That 3,000 people were converted. So there's no place for selfishness, but the issue is we're, we're taught to justify it as human beings. Now I want us today to just think of, examine ourselves honestly. Are you having any issues with any of these? With your church family? With your spouse? In your family? Perhaps having these issues, experiencing, you're experiencing these right now. And you're, one, and you're hoping, man, I, I, I want so-and-so to be selfless. Why do I have to do it? It's because it's what God commands us to do. We won't always feel like it. It's not always about what we feel. It's about being selfless. Philippians 5, 2, Sorry, Philippians 2, 5 through 8. 
you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think equally with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. Consider where or what your capacity to love is. Is there a limit to it? Is there a wound that's saying, I'm not going to go this far. That's too far. I can't do that. That's too painful for me. I was hurt many years ago. Think in terms of your marriage, your church family. Are we prepared to be selfless? Are we prepared to love those that God's going to be sending our way? God's not going to send perfect individuals to us. He's going to send people that are broken. That have many, maybe more or less issues, but they're not going to be perfect human beings. They're coming here for a reason. Someone once said, the church is a refuge for sinners. It is not a museum for saints. The only difference between us and those outside is the knowledge that we are redeemed and saved by God's grace. But in the eyes of God, we are no less important than the lost souls we reach. We're all a work in progress. The church is one body. We experience whatever pain or joy we encounter together. Because of this fact, there's a certain vulnerability that is exposed because this is the place where we heal, where we grow, where we learn, where we share victories, we share pain. We just shared a big pain a month ago. God was a prime example of the absolute selfness when he came and humbled himself and died. And that is what we do, what we must do each day is to die to ourselves. To be selfless is key in all aspects. And that you will see a growth that you never imagined in your marriage, in your family, in your church, in your relationship with God. I want us to close our eyes right now and let's raise our hands to Jesus. I want us to think about what's happening in our own hearts. Are we connected with Him? Can we kneel before Him? Or is there something else in the way? Maybe you don't have a relationship with God just yet and you want that right now. Now is the time to now is the time to connect with Him. Connect with Him or reach out to Him. We're going to sing a song in a few moments, but I want us to think about examine your heart. Where is it? Can you be selfless? Or is there something in the way? Does that need to be addressed in the church, in your marriage, in your family? Let's pray. Jesus, Lord, I ask you, Lord Jesus. You're in this place, Lord God. We can feel your presence, Lord. Let's get you reach down, Lord God. Look in our hearts, Lord God. Show us, Lord Jesus, what needs to be moved, what needs to be transformed, Lord God. Oh, Jesus, touch, Lord God, hearts today, Lord God. Help the Lord God to have a breakthrough.